But we want to move on with the reading and proclaiming of God's word. And we're still going through this uh, series through the letters of John. And we're nearing the end of 1 John. And if we don't listen carefully, this might begin to sound repetitive. Uh, but, but John is like a fantastic chef who is always slightly changing his master recipe. Here he, repeat, he repeats some of his fundamental points of following God's commands, loving God's people, trusting God's son. But he adds some new information and ideas. It has the similar effect of adding cinnamon to any dish, right? Cinnamon just adds a whole new dimension and flavor to almost any food, any dish you put in. It makes everything else pop. See if you can identify here the cinnamon in this passage. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God, that he has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful uh, for your Son, and for your Spirit who helps us to believe in him. Um, Please be with us now as we read. Um, Please help us to open our hearts, our lives to you, and please apply this good news to our lives and to our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina last week for a a high school buddy's reunion. I flew through Dallas, and I was on my way back Sunday evening. I actually ran into one of our members, Leslie Harkin, and she was coming back from a conference in Birmingham. We happened to be on the same flight to San Jose, so she can confirm all of this that happened. As, As many of you know, that unless you have high priority seating or you've already checked all your luggage, Boarding a plane can be nerve-wracking because there is limited overhead space for your carry-on luggage. Everyone is taking more carry-on bags, right, because we don't want to pay to check our bags. And so this makes boarding, to some degree, a competition to get on early enough to get overhead space. Well, I paid for uh, priority boarding, but that only meant that I was in boarding group four, which still made things a little dicey. I knew I had to be at the front of group four to guarantee overhead space. 
So my strategy that I've developed, I'm sure some of you have developed as well, is to be up front when the line begins, when boarding begins, and as the group of head of me is called, I watch to see where it looks like it's trailing off. And as I think who is the, whoever the last person is in the group in front of me, I just get on right behind them, assuming slash hoping that the flight attendant will call out my group right as I get to the gate entrance. I can't just jump the line. I can't cheat. I have to follow the rules. So on this flight, this is what I did. I got behind the last person in group three. And I was starting walking up, and as I got to the place where they scanned the boarding pass, the attendant called for group four, right as I was there. I had timed it perfectly. I turned, and I smiled at Leslie, and I walked down the jet bridge, confident that I would have space for my carry-on. I had one boarding. I was a winner. I won. Winning, victory, it's not something that we always talk about, but winning might be a very accurate term for what drives many of us because we're always trying to win. We're always trying to overcome the challenges and roadblocks we feel that the world throws at us. It can be mundane things like traffic. How do I get there faster? Or shopping. How do I get stuff that looks good but it's not too expensive and not everyone else has? But it's also big things like career or family or physical health. And it never stops. After I had won boarding, I had to try to win the armrest battle, right? (laughs) After you win promotion to manager, you have to win promotion to vice president. After you win career, you have to win retirement. After you win your kid's adolescence, you have to win their college and mating years. It never stops. And what many of us find out in life, more than once usually, is that pursuing these victories, trying to win the world's way, ends up crushing us. So maybe it's all wrong. Maybe we're going after the wrong kind of victory. Well, winning victory is one of the new concepts here that that John brings up in this passage. And he suggests that believers in Jesus have already overcome. They have already victory over the world. Well, what does he mean by that? Is it different than the winning we're constantly pursuing? And if so, how do we get it? What enables it? Well, that's how we're going to look at this passage. We're going to dwell on three major concepts we see here. The wrong kind of victory, the right kind of faith, and eternal life now. So we'll start with the wrong kind of victory. Look at verses 3 and 4. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. John is saying that if you've been born of God, you have overcome the world. You are victorious. So, of course, God's commands are not burdensome. Did you hear that? John says God's commands aren't burdensome. It's not burdensome to turn the other cheek. It's not burdensome to love and pray for your enemies. It's not burdensome to live a celibate and chaste life if you're single. It's not burdensome to give away enough money that you can't afford zip codes that should be within your reach. John says these things aren't burdensome for Christians. Now, for the Christians here, how does that make you feel? For me, I feel uneasy. This has always been one of the most confusing statements in the Bible. God's commands can definitely feel burdensome sometimes. 
So I dug down into the Greek and and how this word burdensome is used. And it's used only six times in the New Testament. It can have two kinds of meanings. A positive meaning, like weighty and honorable. The heavier, weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy, for instance, the way Jesus talks about it. God's commands are weighty and glorious and important. But the word also can have a negative connotation, like an unbearable load, something that is hostile, something that crushes. So John is saying, God's commands are not meant to crush you. God's commands are not crushing to his people. Why? Because they've overcome the world. But if you're a Christian, I bet sometimes God's commands do feel crushing and hostile. And if you're not a Christian, they certainly might seem crushing and hostile. Why? Why can it feel so crushing and burdensome to care for our uninteresting or unhelpful neighbors? Why can it feel so crushing and burdensome to say no to our overindulged or unhealthy appetites? Why can it feel so crushing and burdensome to love the other people just in this room? Why can it feel so crushing and burdensome to even make it to church regularly? Why do God's commands feel crushing and hostile sometimes, rather than beautiful and glorious? Because in those moments, we're not interested in overcoming the world. We're interested in winning within the world. To put it very simply in terms of my opening illustration, I cannot simultaneously serve my co-passengers on the plane while beating them out to one of the few remaining overhead bins. I can only do one of those. In our culture, we are called, inspired, pressured to hashtag crush it, kick butt, crush it. Carl Richards, he's a financial planner and journalist for the New York Times. He, he wrote this a few years back about our culture's obsession with crushing it. I put it in the front of your bulletin. Up at five in the morning? Tried it. Daily workouts? Yep. Paleo, bulletproof, gluten-free, cold showers? Check. Build a business, start a side hustle, dominate Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook? Yeah, all that too. Make my family a priority? Of course. Serve in my community? Definitely. For 5,478 days, I've been hitting repeat, and it's killing me. See, winning the world's way, crushing it, actually crushes you. It means no let up, no celebrating, no rest. Literally, the guy who wrote the book on crushing it, Gary Vaynerchuk, says, people simply need to work harder and faster. There's really nothing else to it. I'm exhausted every day but I'm making all sorts of things happen in my 18 hours and I'm prioritizing what's important and what's not. This journalist, Carl Richards, continues, a part of me in some dark corner of my mind whispers, this is all true, Carl. If you don't keep hustling, you'll end up falling behind and no one will listen to you ever again. Then you'll just be another failure left to crawl under a rock, cold and alone to die. (laughs) Now that's, of course, extreme but I actually think many of us can relate to these feelings. Now, maybe you're not supercharged around money or career or fitness, but you're still trying to win in all kinds of ways. Win your kids' good behavior or happiness. Win people's envy of your life on Facebook or Instagram. Win the weekend with your adventure or leisure. Win the fickle approval of your friends and social circle. Or even win the victim war. Who can be the biggest victim and have it the hardest? How can you prove it's everyone else's fault 
but yours. When we're living these ways, pursuing these kinds of victories, we don't have victory over the world. We're stuck in the world. When we're busily trying to crush it, and then remember we have to keep God's commands too, we feel crushed. God's commands are burdensome and do crush us when we're so enmeshed in pursuing the world's victories. Every moment, we are either choosing to opt in to the world's stream and pursuit of victory here, or we are choosing to opt out of the world's stream and value, and we overcome it. How? By faith. The right kind of faith. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Why does faith in Jesus equal victory over the world? Why do they have to be opposed? Why can't you have both? Why can't you crush it in this life and then crush it in the next? Right? That's exactly what these people who left John's community were trying to do. Remember, John wrote this letter because some big shots left his churches, and were teaching something different than the companions of Jesus were teaching. These guys thought they could have both kinds of victories. We see it here in verse, verses 6 through 8. This language sounds strange to us, but there's an easy explanation for it, and it will really help us understand everything that's going on. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. This is he, Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. This this is how it works. These people who left were saying that Jesus received the Spirit of God at his baptism at the Jordan River. The Gospels talk about this. Jesus' job then was to dispense the Spirit onto humankind. And the way that that happens is at people's baptism. So now, if you've been baptized, you're all set. These guys who left were saying, hey, we've been baptized and we're united to Jesus. So we have the Spirit of God now. We have all insight and truth and we can live how we want. We don't need these burdensome, old, outdated commands of God. And so John says in return, Jesus did come by the water, but he also came by the blood. Jesus was baptized as we are baptized into him, but he also died on the cross for our sins. John, in fact, saw both water and blood flow from Jesus' side as he had died on the cross. So the cross is where the true identity of Jesus is revealed. But these guys who left, they were saying that they didn't have sin, and so Jesus didn't need to die for them. So if you're calling on a Savior who comes only through water, who simply baptizes you in the Spirit of God, and then that's it, then you're all set, and you can crush it in this world. You can think you have God and whatever else you might want. You don't have to worry about your sin, because Jesus didn't come by the blood, and he didn't have to die for you. There are still plenty of people who call themselves Christians and live this way. But if you call on a Savior who did die for you, who was tortured for you, then you are acknowledging something is flawed about you, something not right about your desires in this world. There's something about you that needs changing. So faith in the real Jesus is the opposite of winning. 
Winners don't need faith or hope because this kind of faith is an admission of weakness. This kind of faith is for losers. Faith is for people admitting there's something wrong with their sexuality, with their politics, with their use of money and power and time. To have real faith in the real Jesus means opting out of having to crush it. We're tempted to think that victory is getting in shape or having the successful startup or making it to the good university or having kids that are well put together. It's not. Real victory is being free from those things defining you. These things don't have to define you. And maybe you want them to. Maybe you feel like you have no other choice. What else can I do? Well, on the cross, Jesus overcame these things. He overcame the value systems and judgment of the world as he rose from the dead. He is greater. He is victorious. So having faith in Jesus means rejecting, crushing it the world's way. And I wonder if we're doing that. I wonder if we all understand this and feel free from having to crush it. Recently, a member here at Grace, who I deeply respect, talked about their first time visiting us. They almost didn't return. They said everyone was too nice, too smart, and too buttoned up. In other words, we were looking like we were crushing it, and that's what we valued most. I was sick to my stomach to hear that. Do we understand that having faith in Jesus means admitting weakness and neediness and not being concerned about the world's judgment and value systems? Do we understand that? I'm happy to admit it starts with the leadership up front. So let me share something with you about myself that I would rather not share. I started therapy this past week, you know, going to a professional counselor. I did this for a number of reasons. The primary one being that whenever I feel criticized by my wife, I simply shut down and go silent. I go into Cold War mode. And there's got to be a better, more Christ-like response than that. And I need help from a professional sorting out what's going on inside of me and why I respond that way. So the pastor's marriage isn't perfect. The pastor can't counsel himself through it. You might say, well, big deal, Bob. You're going to therapy, so what? And I might have agreed with you last week. I recommend professional counseling to people all the time, just not to myself. When it came down to it, I was so surprised how hard it was for me to confirm that first appointment. I truly hesitated. Why? Well, what did this say about me? And what was I going to say to my wife? And am I really this needy and this weak? Am I in this category now? And all of us have things in our lives that make us feel this way. And we don't want to share it with anybody. Why? Because we've got to crush it or at least look like we are. We've got to be smart and nice and buttoned up. And all all the while we're wondering why God's commands feel crushing. Why aren't they easier? Why isn't there more joy? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came not by water only, but also by the blood, 
taking our place. He was crushed under God's commands. He was crushed under the world's judgment and dismissal. So now you don't have to be afraid of these things. You don't have to win the world's way. And you don't have to be crushed by God's commands. Since Jesus took your place, as you look to him in faith, you cannot be crushed by the world or God's commands. So now God's commands can be received as they were always intended to be received, to bring life. What do you receive with this kind of faith? You receive eternal life now. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is perhaps the climax and thesis statement of the whole letter. Now, you can read this in a very thin, shallow way. To some people, this sounds like if you say the right words, say you believe in Jesus, then you get to go to heaven when you die. And the people who don't, well, they got to go to hell. They didn't say the right words. It can just sound absurd. Your eternal destiny is based on saying the right combination of words. That's literally the definition of magic. There's plenty of people, my parents included, probably some here this morning who think that Christianity is merely fire insurance. It's sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to be played at death. Other than that, it has little bearing on the here and now. But that's not what John is describing. John is describing a faith that brings victory and life right now. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, past tense. And this life is in his son, present tense. Whoever has the son, present tense, has life, present tense. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life, present tense. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, present tense. Life now, eternal life now, victory now. Faith in Jesus, the victorious one, brings new life into you right now. How? If you believe that Jesus was crushed in your place and rose from the dead, then you know he is victorious over the world. You don't have to serve or live in fear of the world's judgment. If you want that kind of victory, you have it in Jesus. We saw last week, you've been loved perfectly in Jesus and perfect love casts out fear. When God looks at you through Jesus, all he sees is my son, my daughter. So his commands are not traps. They're not tests. They are the ways of our father. And as we engage in them, they enable us to draw near to him and enjoy him more. His commands are a delight. Even as we fulfill them imperfectly, Right? That's why this happens by faith. When the world says, you, you, no, you can't. Just look at yourself. You can't do this. Faith says, yes, I can as I look at Jesus. The world says, you can't keep God's commands. You can't love these people. You can't do without status and stuff and sensuality. You can't say no to your appetites. You can't admit your deepest brokenness. You can't live as a sinner yet justified. Faith says, yes, I can in Jesus the crucified one. He lives in me by his spirit and is making me new. The world says, you can't stop working and actually rest. You can't give valuable time to nobodies. 
you can't get involved in issues too great for you. You can't make a difference. You can't have a disorganized house and you can't let people see your misbehaving kids. You can't tell people you're lonely or unhappy or your marriage is on the brink. Only people who are trusting in a suffering savior who came by the blood can do these things because they have nothing left to prove. They are free from the world's judgment and loved perfectly by God. This is new life. This is eternal life now. Here's something more specific, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. If you've been born of God, if you are God's child, you will love God's other children, period. And that means that we are called and expected to love as family everyone in this room who identifies with Jesus. Now, you might be looking around and saying, Bob, that feels impossible. This is a crushing command. But look, no one is denying that this takes a miracle. You have to be born of God. You have to be made a new creation. That's a miracle. You have to be born of God to love God's other children. It takes a miraculous rebirth and new life for us to love each other here. That's why John writes in the passage just before this one, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How do our neighbors come to take God seriously? By seeing the love we have for each other. One of the pastors in our network shared this story a while back on our private Facebook group. He writes, when I was 12, my mom was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and that would later be called bipolar disorder. In some respects, it was like the solid ground of my world being torn from under my feet. Like most everyone in the mid-1970s, our little church had no idea what to do with mental illness. But what they did do was remain present in my life and show a love and care for me that really wasn't heroic or outside of the ordinary. They were just always there. But looking back, I now see that these people were Jesus holding my hand through one hell of a tough time. Nothing heroic or out of the ordinary, just being there. That's all it takes to make Jesus manifest and to experience him. Eternal life now is a bunch of random people who have no other reason to love each other actually loving each other because Jesus loved them first and frees them up to love each other. That's eternal life now. That's a miracle. We don't, we won't do that when we're trying to crush it. We have neither the time nor patience nor interest to care for each other when we're trying to win the world's way. And we can't be cared for because we can't look weak or needy. But if instead we are looking to a suffering Savior who overcomes the world, then we're freed from the world. And God's command to love each other, along with all of his other commands, it doesn't crush us. It becomes beautiful. Let's pray for that now. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that you have given us in Jesus Christ, the one who came by the water and by the blood. And we're grateful for your spirit 
who presses this upon our hearts and enables us to cry out to you, Abba, Father. We ask you that we would be able to live in this victory, the victory that Jesus overcame the world on the cross. Please let us live free from the world's values and judgments. Please help us to live fearlessly, knowing that your commands do not crush, but instead they bring life as we look to Jesus in faith. Do that among us now, and let us be a people who love each other, who show forth the miracle of new creation in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.